From WGBH in Boston, this is The Scrum. I'm Adam Riley. You know, when I talk about the press, I don't mean the two newspapers and the weeklies, but just so much press, looking for stories all the time. And that, as some listeners will know, is the voice of Boston Mayor Marty Walsh. Mayor Walsh is just about to wrap up his first full year in office. I met up with him on a recent Saturday. It was a cold, dark, rainy day at a coffee shop in Charlestown called Zoomies. It's brightly lit inside. There's brightly colored artwork hanging on the walls. It's warm. The coffee's really good. When we got to the counter, they actually knew exactly what the mayor was going to order because he'd been a regular here during his 2013 run for office. If he's paying, I'm going to get a banana cheese bread. medium I wanted to get Mayor Walsh to look back on his first year and size up what he was pleased with, what maybe was more challenging than he expected. But we also talked about some more personal topics, including why that trip to Ireland meant so much to him, why Mayor Menino passing away has actually changed the way he feels about the mayor's job, and his ability to balance being an active member of the recovery community with a job that requires nonstop effort and attention. But we started the conversation talking about Charlestown and the changes it's going through right now because Zoomies, in addition to being a very cool little spot, kind of captures the new money coming into Charlestown, the gentrification that's going on, and the fact that a lot of people who grew up there may not be able to stick around much longer. The issue that's happening in Charlestown is people, the, the housing prices are going so high. And, you know, a lot of the families who were able to maybe inherit a home here uh, are able to stay. But having, you know, Charlestown, young Charlestown people buying a home here, it's very difficult. I mean, I mean, they're being priced out. The brownstones are going for crazy money. I was looking at a, a realty place that I walked by. Million bucks yeah. for a three or four fam, uh, three or four bedroom house. Yeah, four thousand bucks a month for rent. And that, that's not just in Charlestown. That's in other parts of Boston. I mean, that's happening in South Boston. It's happening in parts of Dorchester. You know, I grew up in a three-family house, and um, and now we have these condominiums selling for five hundred something thousand a, a floor, and sometimes higher, like in areas parts of Charlestown and Southie. And really, when we took, talked about our housing plan, it's about keeping people in in the community and working on keeping people in the neighborhoods, middle class housing. We really have to figure that out. Uh, because people are being priced out every day. And it doesn't seem like that, you know, we went through a little bit of a recession. The prices really didn't come down to the point where people could afford. Because in a recession, people can't afford to buy anyway. So it's really about how do we create more housing stock in the city and in neighborhoods like Charlestown, in Southie, in, in Dorchester, and other places that allow people the opportunity to buy and stay. What are you doing right now to try to create that housing stock? We'll be able to announce in the next couple of weeks we're tracking the number of housing starts that have happened, meaning groundbreakings in Boston. And our number's pretty high right now, and by the end of the year it's going to be very high. Uh, but really, you know, the, the ambitious goal that we create of 53,000 units new housing by, by 2030 is something that we have to achieve. And by doing that, some of it's going to be by working with city-owned and state-owned land. It's going to be looking at tax credits and incentive financing, uh, looking at some of the buyouts that big developers have in downtown Boston with their with their housing stock building offsite housing. So we're looking at all the pieces and it's also about getting developers interested in buying this building this housing because they, they can build high-end housing and there's a bigger return on investment for them, bigger profit margin. Do we need to change zoning restrictions to make that happen? Absolutely. To make it easier? Absolutely. We have to change zoning in certain certain zones in the city of Boston. I mean, in order to get the density we need, we have to change zoning. I mean, it's just 
over the years it's been too complicated to start a business in the city and, and never mind talking about building new units of housing. I think communities will understand what I'm trying to say. I, I don't want to put all the middle class or all the affordable in one area. I think we need to spread it around the city, and there, there is locations here. I'm pretty sure I heard you say on the campaign trail, we're in danger of becoming a city of the very rich and very poor, or words to that effect, yeah. right? That's a point you made. And, and I think, you know, you look around urban cities around the country, uh, I mean, or any city in the country that's kind of, uh, not collapsed, but, but aren't performing at a high level, you, you lose that middle class. And we can't afford to lose that middle class here. I mean, we, we you know, we, we, we got to keep this stabilized. That, the middle class stabilized, just like small businesses do for our country, stabilizes our country, the middle class stabilizes the communities. So you're about to hit your one-year mark in office, and I want to ask you to reflect a little bit about your first year. Um, in retrospect, is there anything that really surprised you about what it means to be mayor of Boston that, as it turns out, you just were not prepared for? I don't know if I wasn't prepared for it, but the fast pace of the job. I mean, every single day, the decisions and the, and the topics, how quickly they change, the intensity of, of the coverage from the press. And, you know, when I talk about the press, I don't mean the, the, the two newspapers and, 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 the, and the weeklies, but just so much press, looking for stories all the time. And, and just always constantly, the press is always looking to be fed. And... The issues change so so much. Well, that would have been a big change of pace, right? Coming from being a state rep who was, you know, well known in a certain part of the city, but you didn't have the sort of spotlight that you now have. No. And now it's not you're mayor of the city, but you're also sort of mayor of the region. No, yeah, it's a different spotlight. And you know, you know, I might have worked pretty much the same amount of hours as I do now. You know, I think I was always a workaholic. You know, maybe a little more free time on the weekends, but the the amount of meetings. You know, the meetings I have have gone from being an hour long to 15 to 20 minutes. You know, so it, life has changed in that sense. Where, where, I, where I would meet with somebody for an hour and talk about an issue, it's 15-minute meeting now, 20-minute meeting. And a lot more, a lot more, I depend a lot more upon the, the, my office and the staff and the cabinet to do things. Uh, there's no question about that. You uh, know better than I that the question of body cameras for police has been bandied about lately. And you've said that you're not on board with that. Can you recap for me why it is that you don't think that's the right way to go? Well, you know, the issue of body cameras was announced uh, last week on Tuesday. Uh, I was asked Tuesday afternoon what I thought about it. I made a statement, and, and you know, you, you have to think through things. I mean, that, that's when I, when I talk about the press earlier. People don't give you time to, like, let things sink into your head what you want to do. But, you know, with the body cameras, and, and I've made an announcement this week, if, if there's a pilot program, we certainly would be part of a pilot program in Boston. But in saying all that, I think the issue of what happened in Ferguson goes a lot deeper than body cameras. I think body cameras is, is, is a, maybe a comfort tool for communities and maybe for the police. But I think we have to go a lot deeper and look at the issues that, that's happening. What, why did, what's going on in, in, in urban America today? Why do we have a disparity? Why, why are black and brown boys um, not getting the educational that they deserve? You know, President Obama launched a program called My Brother's Keeper. We launched it in Boston a few weeks, months ago. Today I was at a, our first working group. We had over 400 people of color at the Timothy School in Roxbury today to talk about this program. So I think the issue of uh, what's going on, I mean, body cameras, that's not the answer. The answer is good community policing. The answer is making sure that the community and the police feel comfortable with each other, making sure that young men and women of color uh, aren't intimidated by the police where there's a relationship there that's where we have to drive for i mean the body camera issue you know the president's going to push forth uh, a proposal in congress and and i'm sure we'll be part of the part of that discussion and and we'll, we'll probably run a pilot program and we'll see what how that works and i'm not ruling it out 
obviously, but that's not going to fix the problem. And I think we, we've spent too many years and decades of just trying to patch things up by ideas and, and, and you know, body cameras and the, and the way we do things. I think we have to go to the root of the problem. Do you think that there is that trust level that you want to see in Boston where, um, you know, youth of color feel comfortable with the police or do we still need to, to do more to get to that point? Yeah, I mean, I think we need to do more. I mean, I, we're certainly not at 100%, uh, but I think that the fact that the police, has made, the police have made so many advances in the last, t- say, 10 years, and this year alone we've changed the way we actually, the way we train some of our young, younger officers. So we're evolving, and we're going to continue to make that. You know, when I say that, we, uh, Nora Bastian uh, out at the academy, the, the, the um, superintendent is bringing these recruits to homeless shelters and, and talking to young people so there's an understanding that police work isn't just simply about arresting it's also about there is a social service component to it and i think that you know the older police officer on the job will tell you probably more than anyone the job has changed so much you know when they got on the job it was it was chasing banks robbers and bad guys and and now it's counterterrorism and, and, and social work and it's it's changed drastically the mike brown and and uh, eric garner cases prompted this national debate about um, race and law enforcement, but they also opened up this bigger discussion about race in general in America and how it's lived in the 21st century. I'd love to get you to reflect a little bit on how race relations in Boston have changed from the time you were growing up. Remind me, how, how, uh, how old are you? 47. All right, so you, you have seen, I'm, I'm guessing, an incredible amount of change on this yeah. front in the city. So what, what's different today from when you were, say, 16 or 17 or 18 years old? Well, I, I tell you, when, when I was a kid, when I was in, 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 in grammar school, I, I remember walking to school, I went to St. Margaret's, and, and seeing the kids that went to the Russell, uh, which is a public school, uh, being bussed in, which, which was fine. We saw buses all the time, but police, police vehicles around them. Because, and that, that school wasn't, it was a grammar school, wasn't as affected like, as, as some of the high schools were. But there was a lot of tension in the city. And this city truly was divided by race for many, many years. Uh, there's still issues that we have to deal with. But I think if we truly want to move forward as a city, as one Boston, we have to have that conversation around race. There's still very deep-rooted feelings, tough feelings around busing. Uh, there, you know, I still hear the stories of people saying that, you know, Boston's a racist town and, you know, I had a bad experience in the 70s. Well, it's, it's not the 70s anymore, but we have to have a conversation here and we have to get that word out around the country that Boston's a different place. But we still have to look in the mirror and say, are we ready to move on to the next level? I, think, I still think there's conversations we have to have. How do you have that conversation? What can you do as mayor to make it happen? Well, we started one program we did with My Brother's Keeper. That's one way of having the conversation. And another one, we just applied for a grant, a federal grant that we got with the Rockefeller Foundation that is Resiliency, resiliency Grant. And we did it differently. I mean, the Resiliency Grant generally was around uh, building design and, and energy and environment. And we put in their race. And we, we completely went outside the box, and we were, able, we were awarded a grant that we're going to be able to have dialogues around race in the city. And, and that's one way of... of that's the, that's the way, I think, not one way. One way of having this conversation of how do you set up and make sure everyone has a seat at the table so we can have the true conversation. What's going to come out of it for me is going to be an opportunity to see where we have to make some changes so that people feel that we've addressed the issues around race. And part of that is goes back to policing. Part of that goes back to hiring. Part of that goes back to hiring in the private sector, the public sector. Part of that goes back to just overall housing. So the, it's a deeper conversation, but it's one that we, we're going to start. Speaking of public conversations, there's been a lot of talk about uh, a possible Boston Olympics in 2024 and what public conversation should or shouldn't go on around it. Um, why would the Olympics be good for the city? 
Yeah, I don't. I don't think we need the Olympics. I, I just think the Olympics would be an incredible opportunity for the city of Boston. Number one, to to showcase our city on a worldwide stage. What that does for us is is, is our global tourism will go through the roof. We'll have opportunities to showcase our city. We'll have an opportunity for businesses in other parts of the world to come here and see what we have and understand what we have. I think the the legacy factor is important. I think the transportation infrastructure that 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 we're going to do anyway in the city, but what really could be fast tracked by having the Olympics, by improving our roads and our public transportation, that's key anyway for, for the growth of our city. Is it realistic to suggest, as a lot of Olympic supporters have, that we could do the games with private financing without public funds being spent? Well, the the the, the, the taxpayer dollars is going to come into the infrastructure piece of it, which is going to happen anyway. But we talk when we talk about private, I mean money going to the Olympics. I'm really looking at building the venues out. We have a lot of college universities that, that are willing to build venues and, and, and be able to have them for long term afterwards. The, the private sector is going to have to pay for this. I mean, other than the improvement... Mostly or totally? Mostly. Because some of, some of the infrastructure is going to be out, is on us. I mean, the, the roads and, and, and public transportation is on us. Because it's not, just for, it's not for just 30 days. It, it's for something that's going to last for decades. I mean, we have our roads and bridges in the city and the Commonwealth that, that are in tough need of repair. This is going to be an opportunity for us to fast-track them. Do you think that there should be some sort of a citywide vote on whether residents of Boston want the games here? I don't know necessarily think we need a vote on it. I mean, but I think that there has been some dialogue, probably not enough dialogue. We probably should have had more dialogue, and there will be a lot more dialogue around if we get to the next round. But I don't think I don't necessarily think we need to have a vote on it. I mean, I, I I've seen polling numbers where Boston, the majority of Bostonians are in favor of the Olympics. They're excited about the possibility of the Olympics. Uh, I haven't really heard from people other than a few people from no no Olympics that that have said they're opposed to it. We're not building a you know, a nuclear power plant in the city of Boston. We're talking about hosting the Olympics, which is has long-lasting effects after the Olympics are here in a positive way. I wanted to ask you about the pushback that you got when Long Island was closed down, the homeless shelter, the bridge was closed, and people had to be evacuated. I remember being struck by a comment you made, I think talking to Egan and Browdy at, at WGBH, where you said, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the, the people who were making noise about this, you described them as rabble-rousers, and that surprised me because it sounded, it, it reminded me, and I think I said this maybe in a previous scrum, it reminded me of Mayor Menino in his pricklier moments. In retrospect, um, are you comfortable with that description? And whether you're comfortable or not, I, why, did you, why did you call him that? Let me explain in context. I mean, I mean uh, the issue of homelessness and recovery is something that, that I've spent my entire career, legislative career, working on. Uh, the closing of Long Island Bridge was a very difficult decision. But for the safety of people going over the bridge, I made the decision. My heart is huge. I have so much compassion for people that have addiction problems and homeless problems. Some of the advocates advocating on behalf of people clearly don't know who I am on my record. Uh, and I think that you know a lot of the people, that, that, that they haven't come to me, uh, a lot of these advocates. And I don't see these advocates in City Hall fighting for funding. I didn't see some of these advocates at the State House walking the halls during budget session when just about every single homeless program in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts was in my office. Uh, so I, I got frustrated about, about them. I think that, you know the issue of the homeless situation is certainly a top priority of mine in, in around recovery issues. So on the show, Jim and Marjorie just asked me, and I just got frustrated because I keep hearing these so-called advocates out there advocating behind. Who are they? You know, step up and, and don't Twitter and don't Facebook. Give me a call and let's have a conversation. I mean, because my door's open. Now, in saying all that, uh, I think the fact that we close Long Island Bridge long-term is going to be a blessing because what we've done in the city of Boston over the years, we've had, we've had a, a homeless shelter. We've sheltered people. 
We haven't necessarily put support programs around them. So now we have a real opportunity to look at the homeless issue on, on the city side and, and do some incredible things as Pine Street Inn does, as Rosie's Place does, as St. Francis House does. This is a sensitive question, and I, I want to make sure I frame it the right way. I'm wondering if you are now able to, to govern differently or to think differently about your role now that Mayor Menino has passed away. And again, I know this is very sensitive no, stuff, I, but... I, I don't even, let, me, let me rephrase that. Let me, let me try and help you with the question. Thank you. Um, when I took over as mayor, Mayor Menino is and was, was and is, I should say, such a big figure in the city. And, you know, I would go to an event, Man Menino would be there, uh, a lot of discussion around Man Menino, and we had a chance uh, over the last 10 months to talk a lot. And I had a conversation with Man Menino uh, a few days before he passed. I was in his, in his hospital room, and Angela was there for part of the conversation, and it was the first time, really, that we, we just talked um, as mayor. I asked him questions about different things. Um, he gave me answers, and, and he asked me questions about different things. It was just, it was just a, it was an interesting, look, reflecting on the conversation, incredible. I got the phone call that Man Manino died. I was sitting in uh, a chair that he sat in for 20 years. And for a moment, I was alone in the office and thinking about the mayor. And I thought to myself, in some ways, I'm the mayor of Boston now. You know, th- that kind of thought came over my head, um, you know, because, you know, I, he was there to make a phone call to or he was just kind of in the presence, like every event I'd go to or, you know, like I'm doing Christmas tree lightings now and, and holiday tree lightings, whatever you want to call it. And he was there last year. Now it's like he's not there this year. And it, it's sad in, in, in a lot of respects that he's not here to enjoy what, what he loves so much. But I'm also grateful for the service he provided to the city. And, and the answer to your question is, yeah, I, the day he passed, uh, I thought about I'm the mayor of Boston now. You know, it's interesting as you talk about that. I'm thinking about um, what it's like when you're a, a, a child who experiences their mother or father passing away. My dad died about five years ago, and I remember it's, it's something that sort of sank in over time, but somehow I felt a little more adult yeah. after he passed yeah, away. Yeah. And I already was a parent. I, my, dad, my dad died four years ago. And, you know, like you're absolutely right. When your father passes, you think, wow, you know, because for years, like, the fa- my father, for me, was was always the fallback. You know, if I need a few bucks, I go see him. If I need help, you know, always be there and never judgmental of me. Even with my political career, when I took votes on the death penalty and gay marriage, he was never he was never never critical of my position, whether he agreed with me or not. Uh, and, and part of that is when me and Menino died. It's not the same thing as a father, but it's kind of like you're the captain of the team now. And it's like, wow, it's your team. And, and I think that that's exactly how I felt that morning, that day. And it was, you know, there was a, there was a transition. It was almost like a second transition. The first came from from the passing of Mamanino, literally passing the the keys to me, which he literally handed me the keys to the city. And then this, the passing of him from this earth. Uh, yeah, there was, there was definitely that uh, that feel. One more question for you: talking about parents and the way you think about them when they die. Is that one reason that? the Ireland trip was so important to you. I remember reading about it and, and thinking, you know, wow, this is, I'm kind of surprised at, at how much from afar Mayor Walsh seems to be valuing this trip. Well, you know, I grew up going back to Ireland a lot of summers. You know, my mother and father both came from Ireland. Um, I love Ireland. You know, it's my second home. 
I have family there. I remember being there with my grandparents for life. My mother's parents, my father's parents had passed. It's such a big part of who I am. And going back this time did mean an awful lot because when I was running um, in the little village my mother's from, in the little village my father's from, they had a billboard up for me for the mayor's race. They literally had a billboard on the side of the road. People had bumper stickers on cars. And it meant a lot to them. And me going back to thank them, there was an event where both villages came together. There was over a 1,000 people in the room. And to me, I realized that my election, what it meant to people who left Connemara and a lot of other parts of Ireland who left there with nothing and went to, whether it was Boston or New York or Chicago or Canada or wherever they, or Australia or England, what it meant to have, you know, all of these immigrants, people leave, and then they're, they're the next generation return. And I, it, it hit me. It meant an awful lot. And for me personally, my father wasn't with me. My mother was there. It was great to have my mother there. I mean, she loved it. And, and But um, I went to her school, which she went as a girl. And they, they planted a tree for me there. And then I went to my father's school. He went as a boy. And, you know, I was sitting there thinking to myself, it would be great if he was here with me today. But he wasn't. At least he wasn't physically there. So they gave me the... Um, registry of the day he signed up for school and I, I looked at the registry and the day he signed up for school was April 10th 1933 I was born April 10th 1967 so for me it was like I got emotional because he was right there and, and it was it was incredible you know so for me you know it's just such a big part of who I am I mean I'm proud of I'm proud of the fact that my father left Ireland at a young as a young boy to send money home to his mother and I'm proud of the fact that my mother left Ireland at the age of 17 to come to America to send money home. You know, I don't know how many of us in this country could do that to go to another country, but they had to. So I'm proud of that fact. I know that, that your place in the recovery community is really important to you also. And I'm wondering if you have been able to be involved in that community even while you're doing the mayor's job. And, and whether it's it's hard, whether there are times when... You might get a call from someone who, who needs help or who wants to talk to you. Are you still able to do what you want to do with people who need support? Absolutely. You know, recovery, recovery in, in some cases has to come first for me personally. You know, I, I'm still active in what I have to do uh, a day at a time uh, to stay connected to the program. I still do my thing, uh, which is important. Um, when you say you still do your thing, what does it mean to, to do your thing? I still go to, my, I still go to meetings and, and, and stay connected to people in recovery every day. I talk to somebody in the program every day. Um, more than one person, but um, you know, it's you know I don't turn my back. So I, I don't tell anyone. Anyone who needs the help from me, I'm not going to say call me tomorrow because tomorrow might not come for them. You know, I was uh, I was at the pharmacy down the street from my house the other day, right Aiden. I was going in for something. I came out. Get, kid grabs me and you know he's looking for help and and so I took time out, got a phone number, got his number, hooked him up with somebody, and we got him in detox. Um, I don't know where. I know hopefully he's still there, but I know that. Family members of his reached out to me and said thank you because I've been trying to get him into detox for a long time. You got to do that. I mean, I, I can't turn my back. I mean, if I saw somebody in the street now that looking for help, I would, you know, I, I would hook them up with somebody that can help get them into try and get them into a program. You can't turn your back. I, I don't want to. I can't say to somebody, oh, I'll talk to you tomorrow about it because, as I said earlier, tomorrow might not come for them. Boston Mayor Marty Walsh at Zumi's Coffee House in Charlestown. 
haven't already subscribed to the Scrum in iTunes, and I don't know why you haven't, Connor Units, please do. You can find links to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and past episodes of the Scrum, all that good stuff, on our website, wgbhnews.org scrum. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. That's R-E-I-L-L-Y Adam. The Scrum team includes WGBHnews.org senior editor Peter Kadzis and WGBH political analyst David Bernstein. Our producer is Abby Ruzika. Special thanks to Gary Mott this week and to the folks at Zoomy's Coffee House for letting us record during rush hour. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. We'll be back next week.